0: The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Novocherkassk, a southern Russian town. The jail. Death row. A man is awaiting a date with his executioner. Like anyone sentenced to death, he's nervous. Any knock at the door could be the last. His name, Andrei Cicatillo. I'm nothing but an actor who's performed a role to earn an Oscar and to get into the Guinness Book of Records, that's all. Let the person who's written the scenario for all this explain it to the people. I must describe how it all happened, but what can I explain when they didn't show me the case file, they hid it, they're hiding it all. They've put great things in there, painting me as a beast, that's all. And now people look at me, they must put up with me here. The Defendant's Commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh,
2: slit them, them all the way open. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell
3: me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I
2: would have felt better. Then I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shane. With me, as always, is the beautiful, the lovely, obsessed with serial killers.
0: Annie Weebs, how are you, Shebae? I'm
2: doing good, Annie. <laughs> We're coming off... That's true. ...last week's episode where we talked about top 10 serial killers that you wrote about. Right. And we did the first, well, from 10, we 10 did to fi- 6.
0: Right. We did the first five, and so this is the second part... Of an article that I wrote last year entitled Weebs Worldwide Worst Serial Killers We're doing numbers 1 through 5
2: today This is part 2 But before we get into that Let's uh, let's go ahead and give a shout out to this month's patrons Bethany Hammondtree and Cool Scout 9 Thank you for being Do-do-do-do. patrons of Paranormal Warehouse And the Serial Spirits Podcast As always, if you would like to become a patron Go to patreon.com forward slash paranormal warehouse. Before we get into this though I just want to say I've been reading all of that stuff that was unsealed the Ghislaine Maxwell stuff with the Epstein case and there's so much to it.
0: 2024 pages to be exact I believe. Oh yeah
2: it's it's insane and there's all this stuff and some there's some redactions in there too which is you know we read some of it together last week and it just you know it's I don't know man there's a lot to it and there's it's gonna hit the fan soon.
0: It is, and I'm anxious to see how it turns out and to see if she survives long enough. to. They've pushed her trial from July of next year back to September of next year now. Yeah,
2: so there's some stuff. Right. Some stuff's going to go down in the next year. Exactly. So it's going to be interesting to see. And as all that stuff unfolds, you know, I'm sure there'll be an episode here or there where we talk about this kind of stuff. But right now, we're going to talk about some serial killers. Okay, so,
0: so let's recap the first five, six yes. through ten.
2: Let's recap real quick. For those of you who, for those of you who didn't listen, go back and listen to part one because you missed some good ones.
0: Start with it because it's some pretty depraved stuff. Okay, number ten was Juana Barraza, a.k.a. the Lady Luchadora, or the Old Lady Killer.
2: Yeah, the old, old Nacho Libre. Nacho
0: Libre. Number nine was Pedro Lopez, a.k.a. the Monster of the Andes.
2: That guy was messed up. He should have been he's higher a, on the list. Yeah, he's a Friends weird Hindsight's on
0: that one. Number eight, Eileen Warnos, the damsel of death. Number seven, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer. Son of Sam. And number six was John Wayne Gacy, a.k.a. the clown killer, Pogo the Clown.
2: Pogo the creepy-ass clown. So I'm sure the top five are going to be pretty depraved as well. So listener discretion is advised. If this kind of stuff makes you squeamish then
0: Yeah, because this better one, skip this one. Yeah, this one gets pretty uh gets pretty depraved as well. So Alright,
2: so let's get into part two of Weeb's weird serial killers. Worldwide Killers. Worst worldwide Worst serial Not to be confused as prestige worldwide. God, we're sick. We're laughing before we talk about serial killers. What's we're wrong with us? Let's get into brothers. it right now. Okay. Part two.
0: Number five, Jack the Ripper. From April 1888 until February 1891, a string of murders occurred in crime-ridden London, originally called the Whitechapel Murders. 11 women, mostly prostitutes from local brothels, were found with their throats cut and bodies mutilated. A serial killer who became known as Jack the Ripper was accused of the brutal slayings. Although numerous theories remain as to who Jack the Ripper really was, the murderer's identity remains a mystery. Mid-19th century London was a city overrun by an influx of Irish immigrants, Jewish refugees, and migrants from other areas of Eastern Europe. Work and housing conditions were deplorable, and crime was commonplace. In order to survive, many women fell into prostitution. Many of these women began to report physical attacks and robberies to local authorities, but most were ignored due to the lifestyle that they led. The first victim, Emma Elizabeth Smith, was attacked on April 3, 1888. She was robbed and sexually assaulted. Although she initially survived the assault, she developed an infection from her wounds and died shortly thereafter. The Ripper's second victim, Martha Tabram, was found in August 1888, dead from 39 stab wounds. The brutality of her murder caught the attention of local police and they began to take notice of the claims of the sex workers. A grouping of brutal murders known as the Canonical Five were the Ripper's next victims. All five women, murdered during the later half of 1888, were found mutilated. Their throats had been cut, bodies disemboweled, and internal organs such as their uterus and kidneys were all missing. Although the Canonical Five were the most highly profiled of the Ripper's murders, an additional four murders were chronicled in the Whitechapel murders case file. Then the Ripper's string of murders halted. It was assumed the murderer was either dead or imprisoned. However, the investigation continued. Police went door to door questioning the locals. Townsfolk patrolled the streets in an effort to provide vigilante justice. Authorities examined local surgeons, physicians, and butchers due to the brutality of the crimes and the surgically absent internal organs. River workers were investigated, thinking possibly the murderer had moved through the area for just a short period of time. In addition, hundreds of letters were written to the local newspaper in regards to the crimes, many that claimed they were written by the murderer himself. It was from these letters that the name, Jack the Ripper, was derived. As fear struck the town, physical and political reform of the area began. Attention was drawn to the poor living conditions in the area. Within two decades of the Ripper's murders, slums and asylums were demolished, forcing people out of the area. In the 1920s and 1930s, the Ripper was depicted as a child's boogeyman. By the 1960s, the Ripper was depicted as a gentlemanly figure, well-dressed in a top hat, to represent governmental and upper-class exploitation. Museums were erected in remembrance of the victims and of the brutal, unsolved murders that haunted the town. In the coming centuries, the horrors of Jack the Ripper's crimes have been memorialized thousands of times in literary works, television series, and films. In the 1970s, an investigator coined the term Ripperology as the study of the Ripper's crimes. Who was Jack the Ripper? Perhaps one day, newly found DNA will crack the case. Or maybe the world will never know.
2: Jack the Ripper is one of the most famous murders of all time. If you haven't heard about it, I mean you've been living under a lot rock for the last century, but there's been so many movies. And one of my favorite was with Johnny Depp from Hell. And uh, it basically depicts Jack the Ripper as, spoiler, a surgeon. And it's all a ploy to kill these prostitutes who infected the the prince or the the Yeah, the, I think it was the prince with syphilis or something like that because he was running around with prostitutes. He ended up getting one pregnant or something like that. It's the plot of the movie. Johnny Depp's character plays the first detective who's actually investigating this case. And uh, it's obviously fictionalized. But one of the interesting things you brought up is that uh, his identity, well, who they portray him as, changed over time because of the political agenda that was going on. You said that he was this, you know, scary boogeyman figure, and then he became this political gentleman with a top hat because that's the aristocratic approach to it. I found that really interesting.
0: Right. He went from a boogeyman to, uh, you know, a politician. They were likening their politicians to Jack the Ripper, which was crazy. I had never read that anywhere Yeah, either.
2: and I think that's neat, but I've never been one to really dive deep into... A lot of the Ripperology, as they they coined right. the term there. But from stuff that I have read, they said that, oh, H.H. H. Holmes here in America was actually Jack the Ripper. He moved from England to here. You know, they claim that it's been solved and they know the identity of Jack the Ripper. But I honestly think that it's it's not. They have no idea who he was. I
0: had the chance to uh, interview Jeff Mudgett, who is the great, great grandson of H.H. H. Holmes they did a series about him on the History Channel about all the investigation that he has done into this case. And he fully believes that H.H. Holmes, his great-great-grandfather, was Jack the Ripper. And he makes a pretty compelling story. Well, all the
2: evidence that they bring about, I mean, it makes sense. And and it could be 100%. Because as he went on in life, H.H. Holmes, I guess he just stopped really caring. You know, he just was out for blood. And it's Possible. I mean, it's right. 100% possible, but it's not been proven. It's, yeah. just, a, it's, it's just a theory so But far. if you
0: guys would like to hear his theory, Jeff Mudgett has some really interesting things to say, so go check out that history series and other articles that he's written.
2: Dive down that wormhole.
0: Number four, Tutomu Miyazaki, a.k.a. The Little Girl Murderer. Tutomu Miyazaki was a Japanese rapist, cannibal, necrophiliac and serial killer who murdered four young girls between 1988 and 1989. His crimes and physical appearance also earned him the monikers Rat Man and the Dracula of Japan. Miyazaki was born prematurely in Japan in 1962. At birth, his hands were fused together, which prevented him from bending his wrist and caused him to be ostracized in his community. Miyazaki's family was well known throughout the area, his father the owner of a local newspaper. He was an outstanding student until his teen years, when he began failing classes. Upon graduation, he was not accepted to a university, instead attending community college and training as a photo technician. In the 1980s, he moved back in with his parents and shared a room with his sister. Miyazaki would later say, that he felt he received no support from his family, who were more concerned about material objects than sentiment. He also said he considered suicide frequently during this period of his life. The only close relative he confided in was his grandfather. In 1988, Miyazaki's grandfather died, burying him in an even deeper depression. In an attempt to feel close with his grandfather after his death, he ate part of his grandfather's ashes. Soon after, Miyazaki's sister caught him watching her while she showered. When she confronted her brother, he attacked her and then attacked their mother. During the day, Miyazaki had a seemingly normal and quiet life. But his demons had continued to surface. In August 1988, at age 26, Miyazaki committed his first murder. Four-year-old Marie Kono disappeared while playing in a friend's house. Miyazaki had lured her into his car and drove westward towards Tokyo. He sat in his car with the young girl for half an hour, then murdered her and performed sexual acts on her body. He then undressed her, left her body in the woods near his home, and took her clothes with him. Later, after the child's body began to decompose, he went back into the woods to retrieve her hands and feet. Miyazaki took them home and hid them in his closet. He burned her bones in his furnace, grounding them into ash, and then sent them to the child's family along with pictures of her clothes and several of her teeth. Attached was a note that stated simply, Marie, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. In October and December, Miyazaki abducted and murdered two more young girls treating their bodies in the same fashion, also mailing a postcard to his third victim's family. Four-year-old Erika Namba's family received the card that stated "Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. Miyazaki's murderous run ended in July 1989, when he attempted to abduct two young girls playing in a local park. He managed to separate the girls, luring the younger of the two away. The older sister ran home to tell her father what had happened. When the girl's father arrived at the park, he found Miyazaki taking photos of his now-nude young daughter. The father attacked Miyazaki, but he was able to escape. Police arrested Miyazaki later when he came back to the park to retrieve his car. Upon searching his apartment, authorities found thousands of videos that Miyazaki had collected, which included violent anime, slasher horror movies, and videos that he had taken of his young victims. Miyazaki's trial began in March 1990 and lasted a total of seven years. During this time, his mental competency was tested as Miyazaki had claimed that an alter ego named Ratman had committed the atrocities. His demeanor throughout the trial remained calm and distant, even taking the time to draw illustrations of Ratman during questionings. In April 1997, the trial came to an end, and Miyazaki was sentenced to death for his crimes. He was executed by hanging on June 17, 2008. This dude is a sicko. Was a sicko, he did.
2: This dude is out there. And I'm going to make a joke and I probably shouldn't make a joke, but it sounds like a bad episode of Ninja Turtles with the rat, the rat man character that he thought he was. He
0: fully created this own person in his mind because he had been ostracized for being called the rat boy.
2: I think it's mankind that basically has this problem with serial killers and we forget that. But it's interesting to know that there are sick, depraved people all over the globe. I mean, this dude was sick. You know what else kind of sucks, too, is we used to call my brother Patrick Rat Boy. They actually still call him Rat Boy. Why did you call
0: Patrick Rat Boy? I don't
2: know. He was the youngest boy, so we called him Rat Boy. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Patrick, if you ever listen to this, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> but this dude, I mean, yeah, all jokes aside, this is pretty disgusting. It was and, absolutely and it's, I mean, disgusting. I the death penalty. And I didn't know Japan had the death penalty, but... They sure do. I guess they do. Because a lot of other countries don't. They They... You know, like England doesn't anymore. Right. We know why. We did an episode on the Runnington Place Strangler. But, but yeah, sick. What a sicko.
0: Number three, Andre Cicatello, AKA the Rostov Ripper.
3: Starting of April 14, 1992, in the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don, citizens flooded the steps of the House of Justice, anxious for a glimpse of the accused killer, Andrei Chikatilo. For months, newspaper headlines had branded him the Red Ripper, or the Butcher of Rostov. Chikatilo was dressed in a souvenir Olympic sports shirt provided by the court. His head had been shaved, a standard procedure to guard against lice. As proceedings began, the setting resembled a circus more than a murder trial. He was in a large iron cage in the courtroom. The cage was to protect him from the rage of the
1: parents of the victims. He was never able to sit at a table and converse with his lawyer the way a Western defendant would have been. It was a bizarre scene in the public. Seating, you had a number of family members of victims who were quite vehement in their desire to see him executed. And if they had had the option of seeing him executed by having wolves tear him apart, they would have voted for that.
3: The defendant was allowed an opportunity to address the court. Families of Chicatilo's victims screamed insults, some fainted. In a rambling two hour statement, Chikatilo described himself as a man robbed of his genitals. Born impotent, Chikatilo claimed to be cursed by a lifetime of sexual frustration that had eventually driven him to murder.
0: Andre Chikatilo was a serial killer from the USSR who murdered and mutilated at least 50 women and children between 1978 and 1990. Chikatilo was born in 1936 to a poverty-stricken family in a one-room hut. The family survived by cultivating their own food, but starvation was never far away. Chikatilo claimed that as a child, his mother had told him that he had an older brother who was taken and cannibalized by starving neighbors. Chikatilo, an intelligent child, did well in school, but was bullied because of his small stature that was a result of his malnourishment. As a teen, Chikatilo also discovered that he was sexually impotent. He claimed that he was only able to obtain an erection during violent acts. He discovered this when he attacked the 11-year-old sister of a friend, tackling her to the ground. As a young adult, Chikatilo was drafted into the Soviet army. He was unable to maintain a romantic relationship due to his sexual impotence. In 1963, in what he described as an arranged marriage by his sister, He married Fidozha Adnokheva. Fidozha was able to become pregnant, even though Chikatilo maintained that their sex life was nearly non-existent and the couple had two children. In 1970, Chikatilo obtained a teaching degree and began teaching Russian literature in a local school. In 1973, he committed his first crimes against his students, assaulting two young females in his class, receiving sexual arousal when the girls struggled against him. His assaults against his students continued for years, even after complaints surfaced of the attacks. In 1981, he was fired from his teaching position, but his crimes had already escalated. Chikatilo stated that his first murder occurred in 1973 when he lured nine-year-old Yelena Zaknova into an abandoned house and attempted to rape her. When he was unable to obtain an erection, he stabbed the young girl to death. It was then that he received sexual arousal. He then dumped her body in a nearby river. Chicatillo claimed he did not murder again until 1981, when he abducted 17-year-old Larissa Chikinko. He then took the young student into the woods, where he attempted to rape her. When this failed, he beat and stabbed her to death, then mutilated her body by biting her. His murders continued over a number of years, Chicatillo focusing on young vagrants that he would pick up at a bus or train station, take them into the woods, then murder and mutilate their corpses. Chikatilo then began a disturbing trend. He would stab the eyes of the corpses, gouging them out with his knife. The remains were then dumped into the river or left in the woods, often covered in mud, leaves, or debris. By 1983, police began linking the murders together based on the mutilation of the corpses. DNA samples believed to be from the killer were taken from the crime scenes. A profiler was brought in to assist in the case, theorizing the murders were the work of a mentally ill person, a satanic cult, or a group who was harvesting human organs for sale on the black market. In September 1984, Chikatilo was arrested after police witnessed him following and attempting to pick up several young women at a bus station. He was questioned and police collected a blood sample, but his blood type did not match the DNA samples collected at numerous crime scenes. Chikatilo was released and his crimes became more frequent and brutal. More bodies were found, including those of young males. Some had been stabbed repeatedly eyes removed, tongues cut out, genitalia mutilated, and dismembered. In 1990, Chicatello's crimes came to an end after he was discovered near a train station, dirty, blood smeared on his face, and a bite mark on his finger. Chicatello's name had been placed on the suspect list after his first arrest, and he was placed on surveillance. On November 14th, he was observed patrolling an area drinking beer trying to make contact with children he was held for days interrogated and maintained his innocence however on november 29th dr alexander Bukhanovsky, was asked to join the interrogation a psychological profiler dr Bukhanovsky, read excerpts from a 65-page profile compiled as a result of the crimes and chikatilo broke down He confessed to 34 of the 36 murders of which he was being questioned. He described details of the murders and mutilations, even detailing why he gouged out many of the victim's eyes. He stated it was based on a Russian superstition that the image of a murderer would remain in the eye of the victim. Therefore, he felt he had to destroy them to keep his identity a secret. At the start of the trial, Chikatilo was portrayed in the media as a maniac. He was wheeled into the courtroom in a cage to protect him from the mobs of the distraught family members of his victims. Chicatillo took the stand in his own defense, but then refused to answer the questions when asked. On October 15th, he was found guilty of 52 of the 53 murders and sentenced to death plus 86 years in prison. In January 1994, President Boris Yeltsin rejected Chikatilo's final appeal. He was executed on February 14th with a single gunshot wound behind his right ear.
2: Annie, what is with all of these child killers that you have on this list? God, this is in, you know, we make jokes sometimes about stuff, but this is really, there's some depravity. Like it's, I'm just going to put a short disclaimer there. We, We mean no disrespect, but I don't understand what, why everybody wants to kill children all the time. And it really goes to show you that there are a lot of children who are murdered in this world. And this guy is another guy that what a sick 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 guy. I was going to say something else, but cutting out the eyes because of a superstition, that's I think that he was executed too easily too. I think that shooting him in the head is just quick and and painless and he got got the easy way out. That's that's not cool. He should have been hung. Or basically ripped apart because I would have ripped them apart. They should just let the the mob have them. The crowd of people. They brought him in a cage. They should just let those people have at him. And I just, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of at a loss for words in this one. This one actually made me sick to my stomach. So, Weebs, you got two more that we got left.
0: There are two more. Yes.
2: Well, before we get into these last two, let's go ahead and take a break.
1: Go. Were you traumatized as a child by watching Unsolved Mysteries? Do you like to judge facial hair? <laughs> Guess what? We have a podcast for you. Can you believe it? It's called Perhaps It's You, and it is an unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Samantha. I'm Liz. We're two cool mystery ants. not really, (laughs) who watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries each week. And tell you about it. We update you if any of the mysteries have been solved. We rate the episode on a scale of Robert Stacks. We can give episodes a possible five out of five Robert Stacks, although it rarely happens. Very rarely. We also complain about what everyone is wearing. And it doesn't really matter if you know anything about Unsolved Mysteries or not. You should tune in because it's the number one podcast on iTunes. Yeah, you can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, most podcast platforms. You can also check out our website, perhapsitsyou.com, or find us on the social medias at Perhaps It's You. Yep. And... Get out there and solve some mysteries, bitches! Yeah!
0: <laughs> Hi, I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And we're the hosts of Happy Hour Gets Weird on our podcast we talk all things weird like ufos bigfoot astrology ghosts and even true crime and every episode we create a fabulous new cocktail so fabulous if you're looking for a little weirdness please search happy hour gets weird on your favorite podcast platform cheers to that cheers to that
2: So, Annie, guess what? What, I just got off the phone with Mike Diamond. You know, Mike Deli Meats. Deli Meats. Yeah, and he just told me that we have a Patreon set up. We do have a Patreon. 100%. Hot
0: diggity dog. And
2: we are so excited to be part of this Patreon with ParanormalWarehouse.com, because guess what? You can get our podcast exclusively a week early. Before everybody else gets to hear it. And that's pretty sweet.
0: Not just can you get Serial Spirits a week early, you can get all the shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer, plus all kinds of Paranormal Warehouse merch that is not available to the public. Patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse guys, this is where it's at. Live out your best quarantine days. watching Paranormal Warehouse. You won't regret it.
2: Alex King from the American Ghost Hunter show. He just got a sweet cereal spirits tank top. And let me tell you what, his nipples do hang out of them.
0: His nipples have never looked better.
2: So become a patron today. Go to patreon.com forward slash paranormal warehouse. Get our show a week early with some other cool stuff.
0: You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast.
1: I had uh, these obsessive uh, desires and and, uh, thoughts wanting to control them, to, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, possess them permanently.
2: And that's why you killed them.
1: Right, right. Not because I was angry with them, not because I hated them but because I wanted to keep them with me and uh, as my obsession grew uh, I was saving body parts such as uh, skulls and uh, skeletons
0: Jeffrey Dahmer is recalling his monstrous past. Almost two years ago in this little apartment in Milwaukee, police discovered the
1: grisly remnants of one of the most horrible crime sprees in American history.
0: Jeffrey Dahmer was an American serial killer who confessed to the rape, murder, mutilation and cannibalism of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1960, Dahmer was born into a seemingly normal family. However, behind closed doors, the family dynamic held dark secrets. His mother, addicted to narcotics, pined for the sole attention of Dahmer's father. The marriage was unstable, the couple's violent arguments and outbursts affecting young Dahmer. His teachers described him as a quiet, reserved child. At an early age, Dahmer developed a fascination with dead animals, acquiring animals killed on the road and dismembering them. On one occasion, he claims to have decapitated a dead dog, later nailing the carcass to a tree. During high school, Dahmer became more reserved. He drank liquor during class, claiming it was his medicine. It was during this time of his life that Dahmer realized he was homosexual. He told no one, but began fantasizing of dominating and torturing other men. Only three weeks after his high school graduation, Dahmer committed his first murder. He picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Mark Hicks, invited him to his house to drink, and bludgeoned him with a dumbbell. He then strangled him, dismembered his body, and buried him in his backyard. Weeks later, he dug up Mark's body, crushed his bones, and scattered them throughout the woods. After a short stint in the Army, Dahmer returned to Wisconsin. Dahmer's heavy drinking continued, and he was arrested for indecent exposure after exposing himself to 25 women and children at a local park. By the mid-1980s, he had begun frequenting bathhouses to pick up men. In order to be the dominating partner, he would drug the drinks, then rape his victims while unconscious. Dahmer's murders continued in 1987, when he claimed he murdered a man at a hotel during a blackout. He dismembered the victim, pulverized his bones, but saved his skull and boiled it in cleaner to remove the skin. Dahmer then kept the skull for sexual pleasure until it became too brittle to keep. Dahmer continued his murders, picking up hitchhikers and frequenters of gay bars. He would drug the men, strangle them, perform sexual acts on their corpses, then keep body parts as souvenirs. In 1991, Dahmer performed his first experiment on a live captor. He lured 19-year-old Errol Lindsay to his apartment and drugged him. In an attempt to keep him a permanent submissive, while incapacitated, he drilled a hole in Lindsay's skull and poured hydrochloric acid into the hole. When Lindsay awoke, he complained of a headache and began asking Dahmer what had happened. Dahmer then strangled him keeping his skull. He would perform this experiment on a second victim in May 1991, a 14-year-old victim named Konorak Synthansomphone He lured the teenager to his apartment, drugged him, then drilled a hole into the frontal lobe of the boy's skull and poured acid into it. Dahmer continued to drink while the teen lay unconscious, leaving his apartment during the early hours of the morning to get alcohol When he returned to the apartment, he found Konorak sitting on the street corner surrounded by a crowd. Dahmer told the concerned crowd that the teen was his boyfriend, but police had already been called to the scene. The police went into his apartment where they later noted the strong smell of human excrement. But they left the teenager in Dahmer's care. The next day, he injected Konorak with more acid, this dose proving fatal. Dahmer's crimes came to an end in July, 1991. Dahmer had captured 32-year-old Tracy Edwards in an attempt to further his murderous experiments. Edwards was able to break free from Dahmer and flag down police. Edwards led police back to Dahmer's apartment where a search turned up some of the most disturbing evidence imaginable. Weapons, empty bottles of hydrochloric acid, hundreds of photos of nude victims, and dismembered body parts. In Dahmer's refrigerator on the bottom shelf was the head of one of his latest victims. As police had Dahmer pinned to the ground, he muttered the words, For what I did, I should be dead. Over the course of the coming days, Dahmer confessed to murdering 17 men, the details of the crimes unimaginable. He told of abducting the men, raping them, murdering them, performing sexual acts on the corpses, disposing of the bodies by dismemberment, crushing their bones and the unthinkable, Dahmer confessed to consuming the hearts, livers, and portions of biceps and thighs of his victims. On July 25, 1991, Dahmer was charged with four counts of first degree murder. He pled insanity. Independent psychologists determined that Dahmer was a sexual sadist with antisocial personality disorder, but was fit to stand trial. In February of the following year, Dahmer was found guilty and sentenced to two life sentences plus 10 years in prison. During his first year of imprisonment, Dahmer was kept in solitary confinement as protection from other inmates. He was later transferred to a medium security cell block, where he was assigned the detail of cleaning the toilet block. On November 28th, while free from his cell to perform his duties, Dahmer was cornered in the showers by two other inmates and bludgeoned to death with a metal bar.
2: If you're a regular fan of Serial Spirits the podcast, you know we've talked frequently about Jeffrey Dahmer. He actually is in the opening intro song that we have where he says, uh, "Cut them, cut them all the way open." He's actually talking about animals in that clip. But yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer has been talked about on our show. We actually did a two-part series with Willis Morgan who claims that Jeffrey Dahmer actually murdered little Adam Walsh back in 1981. And, you know, the only thing that I th- that I find a uh, irrational about that claim is that he didn't confess it. But it also could be the simple fact that he was too embarrassed or too scared of what was going to happen to him if he did confess to that murder. Because if he confessed there, that happened in Florida, and Florida had the death penalty. So I think that he was maybe scared to be put to death.
0: Well, according to Willis, too, he said that he knew, Jeffrey knew that if he confessed to murdering and mutilating a child, that he would most definitely not survive prison, which he didn't didn't anyway. anyway, Yeah. But Willis really thought that Jeffrey Dahmer was responsible for Adam Walsh's abduction and mutilation. If you haven't listened to those two episodes, I did a two-part interview with Willis Morgan. Go back and listen to it because he makes a very compelling Argument about the timeline that fits up from when Dahmer came out of the army
2: and it's fascinating
0: Yeah, the the beheading of adam walsh and how the body was was disposed of
2: not only that he just tracks Basically, right. jeffrey dahmer from the the time he got out of the military. I mean and he was in all these areas, right? So it's a, it's a pretty Compelling case that he put together but jeffrey dahmer. I mean he was A definite sexual sadist and they used to say like people who lived in the apartment. They interviewed him you know, during the trial and that kind of stuff, people who lived across from him always said there was a foul smell coming from his apartment. He'd always make excuses for it. And, you know, it's you hear that in a lot of these cases where they smell these things or they see these weird things this person's doing, and nobody puts two and two together unless you do a true crime podcast, and then you start looking at people differently, and you're like, ooh, wait, this guy could be a serial killer. You see a weird guy walk up the street, me and Annie do it all the time. I like, is this a killer? Could I think this everybody's a serial, a
0: serial killer, right?
2: Yeah, because you don't know, because they all act like regular people, but Jeffrey Dahmer was a weird guy from, you know, now that everybody knows what he did, people are like, yeah, he was definitely a weird dude, but Jeffrey Dahmer really, of all these, he's the most interesting in my book because of how normal he really tried to be. He really tried so hard to fit in, and he didn't. So, yeah. We're down to number one, huh? Weebs, down to number one?
0: Number one. Any guesses about who it might be? I'm
2: going to guess Ted Bundy. Am I right? Nope. It's not? It's not Ted Bundy. Oh, it's Edward Kemper.
0: You don't know that.
2: Oh, well, I guess we'll find out, guys.
0: Okay, number one is Ed Kemper. You know me too, well.
2: We did a whole, our first episode, our pilot of the podcast was on Ed Kemper.
0: We're revisiting. We're going
2: to revisit old Eddie. Here we go. That was one week before I murdered my mother.
1: I said, she's got to die, and I've got to die, or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. And I looked at her. I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her, you know. And I'm so cold it's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly, it hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina, see. came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. It's one of our arguments. And I cut off her head, and I'm and I humiliated her corpse. I said, there, you know?
0: Number one, Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer. Edmund Kemper was an American serial killer and necrophiliac who murdered 10 people, including his grandparents and his own mother in the 1970s. Kemper was born in 1948 in California to an alcoholic mother and emotionally absent father. Weighing in at 13 pounds at birth, Kemper's mother began to blame him for the problems in her marriage. His father left the family while Kemper was young, leaving him alone with his mother and his two sisters. As a child, Kemper was found to be of above-average intelligence and began showing signs of abusive behavior. He killed and mutilated multiple family pets, including burying a cat alive, then digging it up and decapitating it. Kemper would force his sisters to play a game that he called gas chamber, in which he would be tied to a chair and pretend to die in writhing, painful death. Kemper claimed that his mother would lock him in the basement as she was afraid that he would hurt his sisters. At age 15, Kemper ran away from home to live with his father. But upon his arrival, he discovered that his father wanted nothing to do with him and sent him to live with his grandparents. Here, the situation did not improve. Kemper stated that his grandmother was also an abusive alcoholic who constantly emasculated Kemper and his grandfather. In August 1964, after an argument with his grandmother, Kemper found a rifle that his grandfather had given him and shot his grandmother in the back as she sat at their kitchen table. Kemper then waited for his grandfather to return home from the store and shot him in the driveway of their home. He later stated that he did this just because, quote, he wanted to know what it felt like to kill grandma, and he did not want his grandfather to come home and find his wife dead. Upon his arrest, Kemper was sent to a Tascadero State Hospital in California, where he was deemed a paranoid schizophrenic, but quickly became a model patient. Kemper began working with the psychiatrists there, assisting them with their research of the other patients. He was even allowed to administer psychiatric exams to other patients. In December 1969, on his 21st birthday, Kemper was released and began living with his mother again. In just a few years, his juvenile record had been expunged. He began classes at a community college that had ambitions of becoming a police officer. However, he was turned down because of his size He measured in at an incredible six feet, nine inches tall, earning him the nickname, Big Ed. Since he was unable to fulfill his dreams of being a police officer, he began frequenting a local bar where the officers would drink after their shifts. He started working for the local highway department and his dark identity began to return. Kemper's next murder occurred in May 1972 when he picked up two hitchhikers 18-year-olds Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Luchessa. Offering them a ride to a local university, he abducted them with the intentions of raping both. After the women were bound, he discovered that he was unable to maintain an erection, became enraged, and stabbed and strangled both the women. Kimber then took the corpses back to his apartment where he had sex with them, dismembered them, and scattered their remains in Loma Prieta Mountain. Kemper continued this pattern with four more young female students over the course of a year. Some of the victims' heads were kept in a closet for sexual purposes until they were too decayed to use. However, Kemper had come to the realization that his murderous instincts revolved around his still volatile relationship with his mother, and his course of action was about to change. In April 1973, Kemper came home from a party to find his mother drunk, in bed, reading a book. When he told her good night, she snapped at him, stating, quote, "I suppose you'll want to stay up all night and talk, end quote." Kemper left the room, waited until his mother was sleeping, then returned with a claw hammer and bludgeoned her to death while she slept. He then decapitated his mother and performed sexual acts with her severed head. Once finished, he cut out her vocal cords and destroyed them in the kitchen's garbage disposal. Kemper then went to the local bar to drink. Upon his return, he called his mother's best friend, Sally Hallett, and invited her to their home for dinner. When Hallett arrived, Kemper strangled her, decapitated her, and spent the night with her body. The next morning, Kemper stuffed her body in a closet, left a confession letter for the police, and fled. Kemper drove to Colorado, listening to local and national news to see if his crimes had been discovered. When he failed to hear news in regards to his murders, he stopped and called local police to confess to the crimes. In May 1973, Kemper was indicted on eight counts of murder. Psychiatrists found him fit to stand trial, even taking into account Kemper's psychiatric history and the fact that he had twice attempted suicide while in prison. On November 8, 1973, Kemper was found guilty on all counts. When asked what he thought his punishment should be, his answer was, quote, death by torture. Instead, he received seven years to life for each of his crimes. Kemper currently resides at the California Medical Facility where he continues to be a model prisoner. His willingness to speak with authorities about his crimes made him the subject of the recent Netflix show Mind Hunters as he continues to lend insight to the FBI of the workings of the serial killer's mind.
2: Ed Kemper is the ultimate uh, example of mommy issues, because once he discovered that his mom was the root of all the problems, he stopped killing. Well, he killed her best friend only to, you know, escape, basically because that'd be the only person looking for his mother. But yeah, he's the ultimate, you know, mommy issue do, do, Killer. Do, do,
0: do, 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 do. I think that's where the mommy issue alert began. Yeah, was Ed because Kemper.
2: they actually based a lot of their stuff off Ed Kemper and Ed Kemper was a huge help in their research when they started looking into the serial killers. And like Annie said, you watch the show Mindhunter, they base a lot of the stuff off of what Ed Kemper told them. And he was correct in a lot of in a lot of aspects because a lot of these guys do the same thing. And one of the weird things that I always, you know, thought about with serial killers is why, why keep all the body parts? I mean, that's just disgusting. It's eventually going to rot. It's eventually going to smell. Why, why keep them around?
0: Trophies, sexual satisfaction in his case. And I'm not saying this like that Ed Kemper is not a sick individual because he is. But when you think about his genius level IQ.
2: And he was a genius. He was a
0: genius. I think he lacked a when people reach that level of intelligence, they lack empathy for other humans and i think that's where a lot of his crimes came from but think about all of the serial killers that have been profiled and captured because of the information that he gave to john douglas
2: exactly and he you know he was the the model the model for it all and you know the fbi owes a lot to him because he actually he he gave them the model for it. And it's crazy to think about that they used a killer to find killers, but it, in all actuality, it makes sense. And Ed Kemper to this day, has i been asked, like, do you ever want to get out of prison? And he says, no, he wants, he's comfortable in prison. He wants to stay there. He's got no desire to be in society. He's been gone too long that he says, I wouldn't be able to function in society. And he wants to stay where he's at. So
0: Ed Kemper has even done things while he was in prison. Like, um, he read books on tape
2: for the blind people. for the blind.
0: Yeah. He read books like flowers in the attic. And I found a portion of it online. And okay, flowers in the attic is creepy enough. But listening to Ed Kemper read it, um, it's whole new level. There's of actually
2: creep. a scene in Mindhunter in the second season where they're walking in to go talk. I think they're going to talk to uh, Manson. And they go and visit Ed because he happens to be, you know, in the area. And he's actually in this. St- they
0: were in the same hospital at that, or the yeah. same prison at that point. And
2: he was actually in one of the rooms recording Flowers in right. the Attic he because was. you see the book sitting there. And right. he takes his headphones off and he says hi to the two main characters. So it's kind of weird, kind of creepy to think about. But, yeah, that's Annie's list.
0: Guys, that is my top ten. But if you have any stories of serial killers that you would like to hear us cover on Serial Spirits or someone that you think should have made it into my top 10, please feel free to shoot us an email or drop us a line on Facebook and let us know what you think.
2: And one more time, you know, we talk about these killers. We're not idolizing them. We're just telling the story about their lives and the models that they made for law enforcement to catch other serial killers. All the time, the victims of these killers are forgotten, and we want to, you know, make sure that you guys keep in mind that this isn't a way for us to make fun or poke fun. Like we, th- no, there never. are victims to all these these killers' crimes, and we can't forget about them in this whole, you know, study that we do on serial killers. So we'll, we keep that in mind, and we have reverence and we have respect for the families and the victims of all these crimes. So Annie. We come to the end of another show. Do you have any final thoughts, anything you want to add, any any plugs you want to make? Do you want to talk about Serial Spirits Live?
0: On Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I am doing Serial Spirits Live on Paranormal Warehouse's Facebook page. So if you guys, again, have any stories that you want to hear us cover, paranormal, true crime, cryptids, any guests that you would like to see me have on there and interview live, feel free to reach out to us again and uh, watch us every Tuesday night on Facebook on Paranormal Warehouse
2: so yeah guys uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show Uh, until next time we'll see you when we see you
0: bye bye thank you for listening to another episode of the Serial Spirits podcast follow us on all your social media apps facebook.com slash Serial Spirits on Twitter at Serial Spirits Listen to us on all podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you subscribe. Follow us on our mothership at ParanormalWarehouse.com. Become a patron today, www.patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Until next time, be aware and be safe.